This is Committable. This is the final episode in season one of Committable. And we wanted to start this episode by going back to the beginning and listening to the first interview that we ever recorded for Committable. In this conversation, Committable producer Michelle Stockman interviewed me and my partner Joanna about the experience of being in a relationship when one of the people in that relationship is struggling with the effects of trauma and a diagnosed mental health condition that the other person doesn't really understand. This recording was made about two years ago, the day after Christmas, when Michelle, Joanna, and I borrowed a laptop, then huddled underneath a blanket, surrounded by couch cushions, because, you know, we're professionals. Michelle began the conversation with a question. In your relationship, when did mental health, the topic of your mental health, first come up? Do you remember? Yeah. It must have been a few months into dating. I noticed that there were some behaviors that I considered weird, such as him having to rush home after hanging out with me. I was like thinking, is it because he doesn't like me that much? Or what was the reason he gave that he had to rush home? That he was tired or he had a long day the next day or did you ever suspect that i was a werewolf i mean it definitely crossed my mind as it should yeah i actually still suspect you may or may not be a werewolf (laughs) so let's save that for our werewolf podcast shall we (laughs) yeah once i once i noticed it as a pattern meaning it happened enough times that I felt like I needed to understand it. So I decided I needed to talk to him about it. And so we had a conversation. I think you said, oh, I think you're picking up on something about me. So I have to tell you about my past. And that was when you gave me, I think, a short version of your journey with mental illness. And over time, I came to know many more details. But that was the first time it came up. How did it affect you and kind of how you first saw the relationship? I think my first reactions were, okay, this explains a lot. Mm. (laughs) And two, I need to be careful about my own assumptions and biases Mm. in order to, like, understand this person. Like, I think I was sort of afraid of, like... My gut reaction is like, ah, oh, this person is not normal. You know, like I, I liked him enough that I realized that if I'm not careful, I can let those kinds of things cloud my understanding of him. The, but the strongest reaction after he told me, I think, and then I started like settling into like thinking about it and understanding it and thinking about what this would mean if I were to continue to date this person. Like if he was able to get through all of that and come out of his experiences like alive <laughs> and also still be like a very wonderful, happy, compassionate person. <laughs> I mean, you're not very happy, but you're happy with me. Like, you're happy when you're with me. For the listeners at home, the response to happy was a vague twisting of the hand uh, as though to go, eh. 
To me, it was a sign that if I decided that I wanted to be with this person permanently, we would have a lot to go on for a successful relationship. Mm. Like if he was able to get through all of that and come out of it stronger, then no matter what he and I would go through together as a couple, he'd be able to deal with it. Mm. He'd be able to manage any challenges or obstacles that we we would face together. Something that I found really interesting is that interacting with your family and getting to know them, they're all wonderful people, but they come from a religious background. I come from a almost strictly atheist background. And then there's the Chinese culture. Then there's the language I'm not familiar with. And then there's the fact that I'm, I'm vegan, which throws everyone off. Mm-hmm. So you have the, the white agnostic vegan who only speaks English coming into this situation and I think in many other situations, the fact that I'm vegan gives me anxiety. The fact that I don't understand the culture gives me anxiety. The religious sort of disconnect can give me anxiety. When all four of them were there, it almost made it easier. I was like, so many things are against me. I just have to not screw up in the little ways. I think that's a, another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the short answer is, I mean, I think my family loves you. I think you don't feel that partly because of your social anxiety. I think that there are some people who, if they were in my situation after the first like six months and like after you telling me, you know, that would have said, okay, this is not for me for lots of different reasons. I think for me, it's kind of like, all right, if I'm going to stay with this person, like really the the pros outweigh the cons, right? Like the the moments that are like so fun and filled with happiness far outweigh the moments where your anxiety is like pulling either both you or me down and... You know, that's like any relationship. If there was no mental illness, would me being white be more of an issue? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have to say, I would be checking your fucking privilege so much yeah. more. <laughs> I, I mean, mean yeah. I'm not saying... So, okay. Like, it's not an excuse. Like, your mental illness is not an excuse for any behavior. I think that there is... There's complexity because you have mental illness. Like, in some ways, it's like the idea of intersectionality, right? But, like... When we're talking about you, in some ways, like your family background and who you are and where you come from symbolize all those different things that are a part of like a culture that I think has created benefits for people like you and disenfranchised people that are not like you. But I think the fact that you have gone through the experiences with mental illness actually help you understand I think we've had a lot of conversations right which is like you've had to face a lot of institutional barriers because Mm. of mental illness whereas people of color just experience those things flat out just because of the color of their skin you know and I do think that like you experience some of that some of those things in a way that even I haven't because of your mental illness and I think it helps you to appreciate when I go on my like rants about white supremacy, for example. Also, that gets to another important aspect about family is that coming from my family, if someone raises your voice or speaks really harshly in a conversation, my experience has been, okay, they're about to cut me off completely and (laughs) banish me from their home. 
Whereas when Joanna does that, when she argues with her family, they go at it. They go at it intensely. It scares the crap out of me. Yeah. And then they just like say goodbye and they walk away. And after every time I see that, I'm like, oh, God, is that is that the one? Is it all over now? Are there ways that you run into stuff like that in your kind of day-to-day relationship? Like, are there times that you've been completely terrified that she was going to break up with you? And then it turns out that she was just like, no, I was just uh, mad and now I'm not mad anymore. When she sometimes says, could you do the laundry? I'm like, oh, God, I forgot to do the laundry. (laughs) It's all over now. I genuinely don't know if you're being serious or that this is a joke because <laughs> that is the kind of thing that sends me into a panic. No, no, it's, it's legitimate. Okay, that's yeah, just yeah. checking. <laughs> it's not the same level as right. when I experience yelling, which I am sensitive to. Yep, yep, uh, yep. But when I forget to do something or even not even necessarily forget, but I overlook doing something. Yeah. And then she asks me and she's not, not even in a malicious way. It's just pretty much a normal, could you do this? I instantly feel, and I'm getting better about this. It only lasts a few minutes at this point. I instantly feel, okay, if I needed to grab one thing before I was thrown out of this apartment, wow. what would it be? Do I have a go bag? I forgot to pack my go bag. So it's not really? so bad because you only have a few minutes of utter panic that you'll be homeless and tossed out? Yes. Now we're talking. Yes. <laughs> Whereas previously, well, so okay, <laughs> back up for a second. This is I, this is actually interesting. I did not think that the, our conversation might go in this direction, <laughs> but this leads to another important thing that we've discussed more recently, which is that the longer you've been with me, the more you feel safe and certain that you're not going to get thrown out of the house. Yeah, to preface that, for the past probably. 15 to 20 years I've lived every day assuming whoever I'm in proximity with is about to throw me out of a room Uh, so in all situations everyone I've lived with almost every family member and most work situations anytime there's someone I think of as an authority I'm convinced at any moment they're going to throw me out unless they're smiling and patting me on the back for doing a good thing but that has gotten a lot better with you so now I'm at the point where I can actually feel safe with you. And I haven't felt safe where I've been living for 20 years. That's why I've been constantly moving. It's because I've been in a perpetual state of fight or flight. I wonder whether or not being in a safe, stable relationship is going to help you in your journey. You'll get even better. But I think I recognize now that there's like problems with that question. Like, am I trying to like aim for like a Jesse that doesn't doesn't struggle with some of those behaviors in the future at some point? To me, it's sort of like I have to wrap my head around the fact that like this is something that I will have to grapple with about you for the rest of our lives. Right. We we want to be together for the rest of our lives. Woohoo. <laughs> um but I do wonder, like, what does this mean for your ongoing recovery? Mm, mm-hmm. Obviously, recovery is harder if you don't feel like you have other basic needs met. And now that you sort of have that, I mean, knock on wood, like hopefully nothing will, nothing seriously bad will happen to us, right? Presuming that like our stable stability and security will continue, whether what that might mean for your ongoing long-term recovery? The answer is 
you give me ground to stand on that allows me to face some of the things that I was too afraid to face before. I think that is the most important thing you can give anyone struggling with, with mental illness is just being there. And for someone trying to recover without that, you have virtually no chance. Yeah, and you can see the difference, I think, as a loved one of Jesse who has known him my whole life. There's definitely a difference. And and part of it is also just, I think, even things like this podcast. It's it's you feeling safe enough to tackle some things that probably really needed tackling a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's my hope. I don't actually think I have an imaginary future Jesse in my mind, mm. you know. I don't think that's the right way to think about it, but I do think that there's lots of layers to you and who you are that you have not been able to really bring to the surface and actualize in your life because of where you were, but maybe with more consistency and security and stability does mean you are able to bring some other parts of your life. You don't have to have a future Jesse in mind, but you can have hope that your current Jesse will feel less pain on a daily basis mm -hmm. because he's someone you love and you don't want this person you love to be in this much pain. Yeah. Okay. But what you're both saying, I think in some ways is still a question about survival. I'm talking about whether the future, hmm. future Jesse is not just going to survive, but thrive. I think Jesse and I are talking about our version of Thrive. Right. Like that's the bar. <laughs> mm, like I'm like, mm. oh, to be in a state where you're mm. not in this just constant emotional, right. like I qualify that as thriving with mental illness. It and sounds it, magical. Is there higher? Is there more <laughs> potential? Yes. And do I want that for all of us? A hundred percent. But that's something I can't conceptualize. Right. That's really helpful to hear. So I think actually what you just did of like switching that perspective about my question is the thing that I, I find hardest to learn how to do. I've learned how to give you your space. I've learned how to watch for the things that trigger you. I've learned how to notice the patterns in your behavior. And that is all hard and has taken time. But this other perspective of like really understanding, I think is probably going to take more time. Like I'm not there yet. Well, good thing we all have a lifetime together. Yeah. Oh yeah. So great. Joanna and I met over a decade after my first commitment, and we have had a lot of really difficult conversations about what it is that I continue to struggle with and what those struggles might mean for our relationship. I reached out to my family, my mother Jean, my younger sister Susan, and my older brother Tom, people who were around me over 20 years ago when I was first Section 12 at UMass. To better understand what impact that experience has had on their lives, I asked, before that Section 12, what awareness did you have about the intersection of involuntary confinement and mental illness? Next to nothing. I think I understood that some people struggled more than others and that some people had difficulties, but I didn't understand it from the lens of mental health or I don't think I had a solid, any sort of solid understanding of, of more than that. I was aware it was a thing. I did not remotely connect it to being something that was in any way connected to like eating disorders or physiological health issues. 
What was it like to learn that this had happened to someone close to you? I did not fully understand it for a while that what was happening was the beginning of a long-term process. Like when it first started, my, my assumption was, oh, we'll have him back by tomorrow. And then, oh, we'll have him back on Monday. Or, oh, this will be all wrapped up at the end of the week. Um, I blame myself a lot for that initial uh, commitment that I didn't take the moment to say, you know, we, this is an insurance thing. We got to call dad um, at the beginning. And I'm with you because I feel like I should have gone down. If one of your parents had been there asking questions, saying something, saying, okay, something's wrong here. If we were all there and we were all having that wrong feeling, I think it would have, it could have, I don't know for sure, but it could have made a difference. I'm going to read something to you guys. This is a statement from UMass Amherst about their policies on Section 12. At the University of Massachusetts Amherst, our goal is to try to avoid having to hospitalize a student who may be experiencing a mental health crisis and help them obtain the care they need in the least restrictive environment. <laughs> Brother? You okay there, bro? Yes? Every time I read these words, I relive the experience of being involuntarily confined. I feel trapped, restrained, and powerless to break the hold that this experience has over me. So I asked a friend for help. Here is committable contributor Brian Patrick Williams reading that statement about current Section 12 procedures at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. At the University of Massachusetts Amherst, our goal is to try to avoid having to hospitalize a student who may be experiencing a mental health crisis and help them obtain the care they need in the least restrictive environment. If we feel hospitalization is necessary, we first work with the student to do so on a voluntary basis, if possible. Once a student is brought to the attention of our professional counseling staff on campus or presents themselves to our counseling center, and the student is experiencing a situation that meets the criteria for Section 12, an immediate evaluation is done by a mental health professional. As part of that evaluation, the student is assessed for the risk they may pose to themselves or others, including an assessment of protective factors, coping skills, and sources of support. We work with the student to form a safety plan to help them stay out of the hospital, including accessing additional mental health support, family support, and connecting with other campus and community resources. At times, however, students do require the safety of care that comes with inpatient hospitalization. We always work with students to help them go voluntarily, but if they will not or cannot agree to that, we have to prioritize their safety and security and send them involuntarily. Once they arrive at the hospital, they are again assessed by hospital staff and disposition will be determined i.e. released to outpatient care or admitted for inpatient care. I don't know whether or not this is an accurate representation of what happens on their campus now, but I can say for certain that is not what happened to me. We have spent a lot of time on this podcast discussing the long-term repercussions of that Section 12 on me. I asked Susan, Tom, and Jean what long-term effects that experience has had on them. 
I think for me personally, this was kind of like the big thing on a lot of levels. I mean, on the on the day itself, I just remember I, I didn't have any sense of would this be over or what was happening or what would good. I just like the pain that you were in was like, I remember like feeling it. It just felt like a, like a drum beating through the house. And it was just so hard to process and understand. And I felt very helpless. So I think for me as like a 13 year old at that time, the way that that started to kind of internalize was the family just felt like it had too much going on. So it's like, oh my God, we have a crisis. We need to deal with this crisis. I felt both of our parents start to have their effect of having a kid who was going through this crisis. Mom was there, um, but I I knew she was also just like always kind of on the edge of like just a complete mental collapse. And I could feel that dad was like trying to, I don't know, he was trying to solve it, solve it, solve it. So so for me, I think that internalized as a fear of speaking up, feeling like I had to take care of all of my own problems myself, that our family ship could not handle any more problems or it would sink. I didn't really realize how much I internalized that until I started noticing it in patterns in romantic relationships. And I would have people who loved me being like, you obviously have needs. (laughs) Would you like to bring them to the table? And I was like, no, 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 absolutely not. I don't want this to sink. Like the whole ship will sink. I can't bring my needs to the table. And they're like, that's not how this works. (laughs) Like, that's not right. Um, I had friends get mad at me because I would go through a crisis and then tell them about it six months later. And they're like, it caused like rifts. And that was that and my own binge eating behavior were the two things that got me to start going into therapy about four years ago. But I would say the big push was just like that friends just felt increasingly upset with me relationships this just kept being the same issue in each of them the fallout from all of this it's hard to say how much of what happened with you has influenced things that i've done in my life and how much of it came from other things like it's so bound up and tied together with the time and with other developmental things that it's really hard to separate out what is specifically that as opposed to that blended with other things. But it definitely has affected my interaction with medical professionals. When we've had to go to the hospital to deliver our children, it takes an act of will to relax enough to listen to what the various midwives and nurses and doctors are suggesting without automatically getting defensive uh, and wanting to question everything they say which is not a healthy response when your partner is in labor. It it does not decrease their anxiety at all. That's just an example. But this was the thing that fractured my sense of what our family was. Like watching the, quote, family therapy nights we did like once or twice ever or whatever. Let me see sides of dad and mom and hear opinions from you that had never been consciously in the forefront of my mind or I maybe never even noticed before. It brought a lot of things out that uh, might otherwise have gone down to just, you know, being able to turn the blinders on and walk past for another dozen years until it exploded at some point. And uh, it has definitely been shaping, although I'm not sure exactly what shape it helped make. It definitely had strong impacts on me going forward. There's different kinds of reactions to all of it. I don't think I could even describe it all in just a few minutes. It's been very pervasive throughout my life, this, um, what happened to you. The effects of a commitment can ripple out from the individual being committed and into the community around them. 
to their partners, to their families, to their friends. It was a call from a friend that started this podcast almost two years ago. So for our last segment of the season, I reached out to that friend, committable producer Jim McQuaid. I asked Jim about the end of episode three, when he suggested that I should start seeing a therapist again. So I listened to that episode where that came up um, again, and as I was listening to it and I heard myself say, oh, you know, I've talked to him about potentially going to therapy again, and maybe he could build trust with somebody. It was, I think maybe I'm less thinking about the project and we're just thinking about you as a friend. So maybe this is coming more from a place of concern, just facing this stuff all the time in such an overt way. I mean, you, you consistently went to the system for help and every time you went to the system, it violated the trust you put in it. You feel now that you know you need to stay out of the system's hands, avoid notice and all that. But that means, uh, you know, obviously no therapists or psychiatrists, but also no medical doctors, no dentists. So how does one become invisible and not noticed? Like, what does that mean on a day-to-day basis? Uh, it sucks. It's, um, it's a constant fear that if I ever do need help, I don't know who I can turn to to get it. I don't feel safe in any of these systems. A few years ago, I had a, I had an event. I woke up like the middle of the night and I sort of stumbled over to the kitchen and started looking for food. And this isn't too uncommon for me. But right before I started to eat that food, I got really, really cold and broke out in sweat and just felt my breathing becoming more and more shallow. I thought I thought it was food poisoning because food poisoning has felt like that before. So I go over to the bathroom expecting something to happen and my breathing just gets worse and worse. And I know the thing you're supposed to do in that situation is call 911. But I'm so frightened that if I call 911 and they bring me to an ER and the ER sees on my medical history that I had an eating disorder and they think that what is happening to me now is connected to that eating disorder, then I might get I might get committed again. So as my breathing is just fading, I finally reach the point where I don't think I can breathe anymore. And so I try to call out for Joanna, but I can't I don't have enough breath to call out. So I just start slamming my hand against the wall to try and get her attention. And she runs in, she finds me on the floor, just struggling for breath. She gives gives me some water, which I thought I drank, but according to her, I just ended up spilling all over myself. And so we have about a half an hour where she's slowly getting me onto the floor, getting my legs up, trying to get some water in me. And whatever this thing is, it slowly calms down. That same thing happened again a year later. Only the second time, I didn't wake Joanna because I knew she would probably call 911. And I was willing to take that risk as I fell to the floor, struggling to breathe. When I was first committed, if I had been treated differently, if things had been handled differently, there was a really good chance I could have had a positive relationship with therapy, I could have found ways of recovering from the distress I was in. But after that, and my second commitment, and my third commitment, and the way I was treated by everyone on my treatment team in between those events, I just don't feel safe in society because I know 
that nothing in the laws has changed that would prevent all of that from happening to me again. So for me, the process of making this podcast, I, I wanted to talk about this really broad issue that I thought it was like a secret I was keeping that I couldn't say to anyone because it's just no, it's just not talked about in a way that most people understand. And I thought maybe if we explored the bigger issues, there might be some answer. Like it was a, a puzzle that we were piecing together. And now as we bring this to a close, I found some personal catharsis, but I've also found no reason to believe that anything about the culture of psychiatry or about the laws have changed in any way that would prevent this from happening to someone else. So trying to be invisible is an act of self-preservation that leaves me feeling really lonely. So that's that's where I am now. What has this experience been like for you? What, what, from the point we started where we sort of randomly, you ran, sort of randomly called me about the state of mental health in, in the US. And I started telling you about some of these experiences and you just, you strongly encouraged me to talk about it. From that point to where we are now, what has this experience been like for you? What like what is this podcast for you now? So I, I think of this as this can teach people a lot about the mental health system. It can potentially get some people pissed and add some people to the list of advocates. So very few advocates have been pushing for a long time to make incremental changes. Uh, imagine if there were just a few more, then there are the people who have dealt with the system and have been traumatized by it, who have gotten the message constantly that the problem is that they need to get over it, who haven't been able to see the strength and power of the system that's over them. But then they get a glimpse of that here and they get a tiny bit of relief in the beginnings of a shift in perspective, even if it's only a little bit where they don't completely blame themselves. Then there's the people who maybe just hear this one day and five years later find themselves in an emergency room or have a family member in the emergency room and they know a little bit more about how the system works and what their rights are. So just from a practical perspective, I think this can do quite a bit in terms of helping in the world. And I just feel grateful, honestly. This can be, like I'm getting like emotional. I don't get emotional a lot because uh, I'm dead inside. But um, so what's next? What, so we have this extremely optimistic outcome where the system is, is performable and fixable and everything's fine and good. Um, now, since we fixed all the problems, what happens and like, where does this go from here? Everything we have learned about these systems is intimidating. It continues to frighten me that we as a society accept that people can have their rights taken away simply because someone else signed a form saying that it's because of mental illness. But the people... The perspectives, the stories we have heard of people challenging these systems to be better. Those are inspiring. So maybe where do we go from here isn't the right question. Maybe that question should be, whose story do we listen to next? I was there for depression and suicidal ideation and was lumped in with people who were actively detoxing from things like heroin and crack, which was terrifying. We have this kind of imaginary line between what is considered sick and what's considered well. And if we're honest with ourselves as human beings, we're somewhere along that continuum every minute of every day. This isn't an us and them thing. This is a potential for anyone at any time. Everyone will say that they're not paternalistic, 
but many of them actually are, right? So they know it's a bad thing to be, but they're doing it. So there's sometimes like a real lack of insight into those power dynamics. And I was so confused as to why I was being told that this is a chemical imbalance because I'm like, this is my life that I don't like. It's the things that have happened. How is that a chemical imbalance? But enough medications causing enough problems in my brain, I was like, oh, I guess I have a chemical imbalance. And then my life took a very dark turn for the next 17 years. Committable is produced by Jim McQuaid and Michelle Stockman. This episode was written, edited, and hosted by me, Jesse Mangan. All music is from the song Reasonable by Christopher G. Brown. Additional production for this episode by Brian Patrick Williams.